0: Uh, Let me invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles, if you have one, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, We're going to be reading specifically verses 23 to 28. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to uh, grab one that is in the chair racks, the blue Bible that is there, and you can find 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 uh, on page 1258 of that Bible. Uh, The words will be up on the Screen as well. These are the very last words of First Thessalonians. Just a couple of verses used to complete this letter, um, and we're finishing up our study that we've been in all fall in First Thessalonians uh, today. And so these 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 lines, these uh, these tag lines, uh, this uh, this ending to the letter, uh, that are short, uh, but I hope we'll see are absolutely critical uh, to, uh, to what Paul is trying to say here. So let me invite you to stand uh, if you're able, uh, listen as I read, and when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration uh, that this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 20, 30, 23 to the end. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now if you're writing a letter, how, how do you end the letter? And I'm not talking about generically, I mean you. If you are writing a letter, how do you end it? What's your, uh, your sign off? Now for some of you, uh, the first question you may ask is, what's a letter? <laughs> so think of it like this. Let me give you a working definition. Kids, if you aren't aware of what a letter is, a letter is, it's kind of like an email uh, or a long text message that is instead written on paper uh, that you pay someone to deliver and takes several days to arrive. That's what a letter. Now you would say, why would you do something like that? Because that seems inefficient, expensive, and environmentally insensitive. Different discussion. Back to my question, my sermon, my question, right? How do you end such a thing. How do you, and I can tweak it if you want to say, uh, how do you end an email? Actually, how you end an email is a, it is a topic of debate in the, uh, uh, in the business world. You can look at some of the business. You can go Google it and stuff. How, what's the appropriate way to end an email? Uh, and, there's, and there's a lot of different uh, theories on this, a lot of different uh, families of endings uh, that some people feel are appropriate. There's the classic formal endings, right, Sincerely sincerely yours, yours truly, very truly yours, or sometimes just yours. Then you put your name, right? There's the best category. You ever seen some of those endings, right? Best wishes, best regards, my best, my best to you, all the best, or just best. Then there, that, that kind of shifts uh, into the warm category. Seen endings like this, the warm category, warm regards, warmest regards, right? Warmest, warmly. Right? Don't see coolly a lot, but that's the warm category, right? And then there are the appreciation uh, sign-offs. Thank you, thanks, many thanks. Or for those wanting to save three keystrokes, THX. Then there are those who attempt to be in some ways uh, culturally relevant with pop culture, right? I'll say them, you guess where they're from, right? Live long and prosper, wouldn't, right? Star Trek, right? To infinity and beyond. Some people will end like that, right? Cultural reference, toy story. May the odds ever be in your favor. Hunger Games. May the force be with you. Probably too easy. Here's the point, though. Regardless of what you use, this is what all the business consultants will tell you. All the business consultants will all tell you that one way or another, thinking through this, how you end a piece of communication matters. It does say something because you've invested time, theoretically, into crafting the content that you want people to hear, you want them to understand, you want them to act on. You've laid out principles, maybe. You've challenged, you've encouraged, you've explained, you've given next steps, and now you want to summarize it with some sort of a, a summary, some sort of a sign-off. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's written this letter to the Thessalonians, he's laid out principles to them, he's challenged them, he's encouraged them, and here's how he wraps it up. Here's how he wants to summarize it, here's how he wants it to, to end. And this is, this is interesting to kind of think through, right? Because we, we reach the end of a, a year and we start thinking about endings. How do we end? How do we sign off? All of us, to one degree or another, should be looking forward uh, to, to what's next. There are different seasons in our lives. And so asking, hey, how, does, how do we wrap up a, a season, a particular a season of our lives? Or our lives in total? How do we want to sign off? How do we want to summarize? How, how do we think about the end as we go through life? Well, so let's, let's look at this. Paul has four things that he does to conclude this letter. He gives them a prayer. He gives them an insurance assurance and assurance he gives them some instructions and then finally he leaves them with a blessing a prayer an assurance some instructions and a blessing let's take them one at a time with a couple of observations for each start with the um start with the prayer look at verse 23 now may the god of peace himself sanctify you completely And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this sounds, when you read it, like Paul is talking about God, not really to God. But this is a a prayer here. Some of the scholars will go through the discussion. You can read about the the Greek construction, the word choice. And they match with what Paul would typically use when he introduces his his prayers. Now, I'll spare you the, the detailed justification, but this is Paul's prayer, his closing prayer for the Thessalonians. Now, I don't know about you, but I will sometimes ask people, how can I, how can I pray for you? In individual conversations, or if you're, if I'm leading a group discussion, I'm going to say, how can, I, how can I pray for you? And in return, people will, will sometimes ask, well, how can I pray for you? And I have to say, I don't think I've, I've ever heard someone say, and I'm certain I've never said, in response to, to that question, wow, yeah, thanks, pray for me. Um, well, would you please please pray that the God of peace would sanctify me through and through, and that my whole spirit and soul and body would be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that's how Paul chooses to summarize how he's praying for the members of this church. What's he talking about when he says this? He's asking that God would sanctify them. Sanctify. Now that's a religious-sounding word. It simply means to be made more and more like Jesus, more and more holy, to grow in moral purity to be increasingly restored to your original design as one who bears the image of god and paul has already told them back in chapter 4 which we looked at earlier this fall that it is god's will for them to be sanctified he wants us to be sanctified put very simply what he means here is that the things that paul had that, that, that paul had been instructing them to do they should they should do. And he wants them to do it with an increasing desire to, to do them. Now, what kinds of things are they? Well, All the things that we looked at, uh, looked at already this fall. He wants them to avoid sexual immorality. He wants them to love one another. He wants them to work hard to be able to, to meet their own needs and the, and the needs of others. He wants them to live with a, an appropriate expectation of Jesus's return without the idle speculation about the exact timing of it but to anticipate that Jesus is coming back or just last week right what did we see in verses 16 17 and 18 what is the will of God for us it's not mysterious rejoice always pray without ceasing give thanks in all circumstance that's God's will that's what God wants and what Paul prays is God sanctify them in other words make that will effective in their hearts and and in their lives now how much sanctification are we talking about here right? this is a classic question how holy do i really have to be right this is the prayer of every every ornery child right the honest prayer of every adult if you're honest too god make me good but not too soon because i still got things i want to do which of course betrays a misunderstanding of what sanctification is is about but it is a common misunderstanding that we want it but we want it kind of slowly because there's other really kind of fun things we want to do in the, in the meantime, which, which is well, that's what, what did, you know, Billy Joel say. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because in his view, the sinners are much more fun. Now, I challenge the premise, right? That, that, there, that there is anything that is sustainably fun about sin. There isn't, but it's possible also uh, that he may have been hanging out with the wrong saints, <laughs> people who don't really rightly understand the joy that is available when we pursue sanctification, God's true design for us. We're created by God, we're created in God's image, which means we are created with a desire and a design for eternal meaning and eternal importance. And so God knows that we're, that we're best, that we're most joyful, that we're most satisfied when we increasingly reflect the design that he's given to us. And so when Paul prays this prayer, he wants, he wants the best for the Thessalonians. He says, sanctify them, sanctify them completely through and through, all of them. And the second part of the verse that he says just drives it home. May your whole spirit spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's just emphasizing the same thing. In other words, how much of us needs to be sanctified? How much of us should be kept blameless? All of us. Now the concern when you hear that, despite the fact that Paul is praying That God would do this. The concern is that we can often hear a prayer like this, or hear an encouragement or a challenge like this, and it can very quickly become overwhelming because it can fill us with stress. Right? We think about the burden that this prayer uh, is putting on us, and we think that it's ultimately on us. In other words, we assume that the sanctification that Paul is praying for is the result of our own just our own will and our own effort, and we just pull ourselves up. And our own effort is involved, but it's not the ultimate cause, and it's not the ultimate ground for our sanctification, which is why Paul not only prays this, number one, but he gives them, number two, an assurance. Look at this, verse 24. Right after he says, this is what I'm praying for you, that you would be sanctified completely through and through, that this is what you would be, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. See what Paul prays for in verse 23 is impossible in your own effort. Impossible. So he gives them verse 24, because without the assurance of verse 24, the sanctification of verse 23 would be would be overwhelming, right? What's God want? Perfection. Where does He want it? Everywhere. So we look at the standard, we look at ourselves, and we say, that's a pretty big difference there, and we just throw up our hands. I say, I might as well. I mean, He's going to do it someday. I might as well just wait, and we give up. And we could, and we would, and it's understandable, unless the ground of our being sanctified, the ground of our progressively being turned from our sin and being transformed into the image of Jesus, unless the ground for that sanctification is actually not our own effort, but the faithfulness of God to his promise, then we can have real hope. Uh, You may have heard of this uh, ancient church guy named Augustine. Aurelius Augustine, brilliant philosopher around 400 AD, was converted to Christianity. And let's say he was converted out of a, a somewhat unsanctified lifestyle. We just leave it at that. Right? He would have had some trouble, let's, uh, let's say, with the beginning of chapter 4 early in his life. And we talk about the prayer of an ordinary child. Augustine was a young man who famously quipped that his prayer was, Lord, make me chaste, make, make me sexually pure, but not yet. <laughs> that was Augustine's famous quip. And yet it was Augustine who knew, as he became a follower of Jesus, that rather than freeing him, his sin, not just his sexual sin, but all of his sin, his sin actually, instead of freeing him, it actually imprisoned him, and that there was no way that he would be able to break out of that jail on his own, which is why one of Augustine's other famous prayers is, Lord, command what thou dost will, and will what thou dost command. I don't know why I revert to the old English in that, right, but... but, Command what you will and do what you command. Command what you will and will what you command. Right? In other words, Augustine is saying, God, you have every right as God to command me to do whatever you want because your will is perfect, it's loving, it ultimately leads to my best. But God, I am weak. I am unable to do it. So as I want you to command what your will is because your will is good, I also pray that you would will me to do what it is you're commanding because I am weak because I need you to do in me what I cannot do. And so Augustine could pray that with confidence, because that is what the Bible assures us God will do. Paul would later write to the Philippian church that he had confidence that the God who began a good work in his people will carry it on to completion. Right, And here's the basis for that. When God calls you to do something, he supplies what's needed for the trip. He gives you an assurance as he prays for you to live more and more like Christ, he gives you an assurance. Otherwise, it's, it's hopeless. It's like NASA telling Neil Armstrong to fly to the moon and take a walk, but not giving him a, a, a rocket ship and a spacesuit. Go ahead, you do it. See how it goes. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Okay, so those are the two, first two things. Paul concludes this letter with a prayer that we would be sanctified and an assurance that God is the guarantor of that sanctification. And then he gives a few instructions. That's point number three. Now, I'm not going to linger too long on some of these points because they're all things that Paul has already talked about in 1 Thessalonians. So we've already discussed them at, uh, at greater length this, this fall already. But there's three instructions he, he gives here that, that I think are worth meditating on a little bit. First, he says, verse 25, Brothers, pray for us. That was very common for Paul to ask for prayer as he closed his letters. Not just to be praying for the people he's writing to, but ask them to pray for for him. Now, there's nothing specific that he says here that he's asking them to to pray. It could be for his missionary work, uh, could be for his security, for his comfort in the face of suffering and and persecution. Those were all realities in in Paul's life. But whatever. Paul might have specifically in mind we know that the readers wouldn't have been left without any guidance about how to pray for Paul because Paul has just finished telling them how he's praying for them and so they would know how to pray at the very least that's what they would pray what Paul was already praying for them now second he says in verse 26 greet all the brothers and as we've said before this is an inclusive term greet all God's people with a holy kiss Now, this is not just an isolated uh, instruction here. Paul makes a similar comment when he writes to the Romans, when he writes to the Corinthians in his letters to them. Peter makes a similar comment in in his first letter. Now, we have to understand what a a kiss would mean in that culture, what Paul is specifically talking about. There is, of course, the romantic uh, sense of kissing, but that's not the word that's being used here. The kiss here is the kind of kiss that was used in the ancient world uh, to show love between family members. An expression of honor, uh, an expression of, of respect, or an expression of, of friendship, usually on the, on the forehead or on the cheek, often occurring at, at formal occasions. Uh, sometimes would happen when contracts were made between people to show uh, the unity uh, among them as they made a deal, as they made a contract. Sometimes when people were reconciled to one another after having a, a, a deep conflict, this is the signal, it was the, it was the, it was the handshake. holy kiss and what paul is saying is take this common element of the culture this this common thing take it and make it holy take it take that symbolic gesture and use it to show something greater because you are a follower of jesus use it to show the unity among god's people greet everyone with a holy kiss now think about this when he's talking to a church that was as diverse as this church in thessalonica likely was you go back and you read in Acts, it was not just Jews, it was Gentiles who were converted as well into this church. And so it would have been radical. It would have been, in this socially and ethnic, ethnically diverse Christian community, in this part of the world, right, this, this, this church likely would have included people from different social statuses. You have people, slaves, freemen, masters, Greeks, Romans, Macedonians, Jews, they all would have been a part of this church. And Paul says to them, greet one another with a holy kiss. It was a call to love one another. to show this bond of friendship, this bond of relationship that was often reserved just for family or for those with whom you had an extremely close relationship to signal a bond. He's saying everyone in the church, you have this kind of bond, and that is how you ought to treat one another. That's the second instruction. Now, the third instruction, he says, is I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, one of the commentators points out that when he says it this way, I put you under oath. This is extremely strong language that he's using. I charge you. He wants them to swear that everyone in the church is going to hear what he's writing, right? Not just the, not just the first guy who opens the, the letter, not just a select group of elders in the church. He wants it read to everyone. Now, perhaps he feared that maybe there was some uh, Disunity in the, in the church, that some might be excluded from hearing it. And so he's, he's charging them on oath to make sure that everyone hears. Perhaps he was concerned about those who were, who were illiterate, who couldn't read for themselves. Make sure they hear. Maybe he wanted to make sure that the, um, that the good church members, those who were farther along on the sanctification scale, didn't exclude those who were sinners. And They're not quite ready for all of this yet. Right? No, he wanted everyone to hear. Right? One thing is absolutely sure. He wanted the letter read, and he wanted it read publicly. Which is interesting, because that's exactly how the Jewish law would have been read when they gathered in the synagogue. It would be read publicly, out loud, for all to, to hear. And Paul wants his letter read to the assembled church in a similar manner. Which, if you really think about it, is a pretty bold request to make. It hints at Paul's own understanding of his apostolic authority of his writing that he realizes at least to some degree that under the sovereignty of God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit his writing was to have a similar place read in the congregation of God's people when they gathered similar as the as the very words of the Jewish scriptures were read Right. so those are the three instructions pray love proclaim and we don't have to use a great deal of imagination to see how these instructions would apply to us think about us now in this in this century in this church what are we to do what should we do well we should look what are paul's instructions we should pray for each other pray like paul prayed for the thessalonians pray that each of us would be sanctified through and through pray that for one another and with sincerity and love for for the for the whole person a prayer that truly wants the best for other people right now it's not not the prayer of sanctification that goes like this some people will pray like this dear God I pray for Myrtle Uh, I pray that you would change her because you know oh great and and omniscient God you know that she can be annoying and just great on every last nerve and you know the wrong-handed ideas that she has for different aspects of church ministry God make her more like me so that we can dwell in unity that's how our prayers sometimes go we might not use those words but that's how we're praying not that prayer that's not what Paul's asking. Because our, because that kind of prayer is about someone, not for someone. Paul is is saying to us today through these words that we're to seek the peace and the purity of the church by praying for one another. The holy kiss. Right? This is this is part of our membership vows. And we don't use the word holy kiss, but we ask people, right? That people vow when they become members, you'll hear this in coming weeks as we receive and recognize new members in the in the next in, in the next n- number of weeks. Right, that, that we vow to seek the peace and the purity of the church. Right? Our membership vows ask you to, to seek that. Whether you, whether you practice the holy kiss or the, the holy hug or the faithful fist bump, whatever you do. It means spending less time complaining about what's lacking in the church and observing how you would do things differently and more time working constructively in our common mission, right? That's the holy kiss. That's, that's, that's working with us, praying for one another, not just about one another. It means even when we disagree with a church strategy or an emphasis, and I don't know of any major disagreement in the church. I'm not speaking to something specifically, as all of you kind of wonder, oh, I wonder what he's talking about. I'm not talking about anything specifically. I don't know of anything specifically, but this is what Paul is encouraging us to think through. Make sure you pray for one another, not just about one another. Make sure you greet one another in fellowship with with the holy kiss. That you seek the peace and the purity of the church so that we can move forward together in our common mission. That's the proclamation of the gospel. Paul's instruction is clear. Don't withhold this message from everyone. Don't just keep it to yourself. He wanted his letter read because he believed that it contained the hope that the church needs, needs to hear. He believed that his message was equally vital for the good moral person in the church who was farther along the sanctification spectrum as it was for the sinner who was, who was less far, far along. He believed that it was equally essential whether your first language was Greek, whether it was Aramaic, whether it was Latin. That's what he would have us do too. Ensure that the message of the hope and the life and the joy is proclaimed far and wide and deep. That's what he wants us to, to do. It's why we do what we do. It's why we strive for excellence in our worship. It's why we study the Bible and in Sunday school. It's why in everything we do, we do it for the proclamation of that message. Now, we don't do any of those things perfectly. We, too, as a church, need to be, need to be sanctified. But, but that's the encouragement to us. Now, the last way Paul concludes... He's given them a prayer, he's given them an assurance, and he's given them some instructions, some instructions that are equally valid and appropriate for for us today. The last thing he leaves them with is a blessing. Verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now that might just sound like a throwaway line, because it is, it's what Paul uses in all of his letters, is a a blessing. A blessing that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. It's kind of like his signature sign-off. But it is not just a throwaway line. All right, because that statement is the foundation for everything else he just said. Right, think about this for, for a second. What gives any hope that our prayers are going to be heard? Right, he, tell, he tells us to pray. Right, I want you to pray. Right, this is how, and this is how I'm praying for you. All right, what gives us any assurance, any hope that our prayers are going to be heard? Why should we be in any way confident that we're able to enter into the presence of God and be sanctified as image bearers? What gives us any confidence that that's going to happen? What gives us any reason to trust the promises of God that He will that uh, that th- 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 that'll keep them? Where do we get it? How do we know? This is how the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And This is not just a formal tagline, you know, like the you know like that gets inserted automatically you know, if you're writing an email, you can kind of set your, you know, you can set your email program to just automatically, like, insert the tagline. This is not just an automatic tagline that just gets thrown at the bottom of the email, right? No, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is the very basis for our rescue. Grace, what's grace? It's undeserved merit, right? It's, 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 it's undeserved favor. It's a gift of great value given at great expense by the giver, The gift of great value is our rescue. It's eternal life. It's a perfection that we don't deserve and we can never earn. That's the gift that's given. And the great expense that is required is the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are made right. We are sanctified because of what Jesus has endured on our behalf. And so when Paul says in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he he will surely do it. He is pointing us to the very act of grace that God has done on our behalf that guarantees that he will do it. You see this, I think most clearly, or this this is what it brings me to. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 ends by promising that future generations will be told about the Lord and what the Lord has done. The very end of Psalm 22 says, They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the same Psalm, Psalm 22, that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which you may remember are the very words that Jesus quoted when he was suffering on the cross, the instrument of grace. Jesus' death that begins with the invoking of the suffering from the psalms, why have you forsaken me? His death, it ends with the promise at the end of that psalm, it is finished, it has been done. He has done it, you see? The, The assurance that God will complete his good work in you The the assurance that he will do it is based, it's based clearly, it's based solidly on the historical reality that he has done it. He has literally done it. It is finished, he said. That's what was accomplished on the cross. And our future hope that he will is based on the historic truth that Jesus has. That's the sign-off that Paul is giving us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's the sign-off we need. And beware of any sign-off that might point you in any other direction except for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most famous um, signature sign-offs of all time uh, was the way that the, uh, the pioneer uh, TV news anchorman, Walter Cronkite. You may remember Walter Cronkite when he was actually on the air. Uh, for almost 20 years, Walter Cronkite, from 1962 to 1981, uh, was the... Um, Uh, the the broadcaster of the CBS evening news Um, and he ended with his signature tagline every night and that's the way it is that's what he would say and that's the way it is so he would do a half an hour news broadcast and he would end and say and that's the way it is you know what's interesting Um, that was not what he said as his tagline the very first night that he was on the air the very first night, April 16, 1962, he, act, he actually ended by saying something like, so that's the news, be sure to check out your local newspapers tomorrow to get all the details on the headlines we're delivering to you. That's what he said. And he pointed them to the newspapers. And as you can imagine, the TV executives went ballistic. Right, this is the TV news. This is the TV news guy. We're not telling them to read newspapers. We don't want them to go any further than right here. You are the news. And the very next day, they settled on the tagline that became what he used for the next 20 years. And that's the way it is. Which many, even at the time, viewed as a bit of an arrogant claim. But nevertheless, it was consistent with with what they were claiming. We are giving you everything you need to know. This is the way that it is. CBS's claim was that if you wanted to be informed, then their news program was your source you need to be very careful not just about your news be very careful about the tagline and what it claims if it is anything but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ then you will be led to a false place because with much greater implications and much greater consequences Paul signs off with authority pointing us to the only true source of knowledge and salvation it is done he says And there's nothing more to say. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have left us with all we need to know. Oh, there is lots more that we would like to know. And lots more that we may know. But all that we need to know for this age, for this time, you have given to us and you have revealed to us. And we thank you, Lord, for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that points us to what you have done. What you have accomplished so that we can then be free to follow you, to live lives of holiness, because we do it in the power and the strength that you provide based on the work that you have done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.